when we have had most of our plans canceled. I know I have. You've probably had most of your plans canceled. I get an opportunity to re-examine my time, not around if Matt wills, but if God wills, like James says in the Bible. If God wills, I'll do this or I'll do that. We have an opportunity today, you have an opportunity to re-examine your coping mechanisms during times of weakness and hardship and press against the philosophies for life to see that, they're, that you have to see that they're firmly Christian and that you haven't borrowed brains from thinkers that are not believers in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is a worldly philosophy that appears to have merit, but in the end, it's not firm. It's not firm. If you will serve rather than show off with the gifts God's given you. If you will search the scriptures rather than searching for new means. If you will do that, I believe you'll overcome conceit in your life. I believe that you'll find contentment. I believe that you will see with the believers across time in church history that his grace is sufficient, but yourself is not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we open your word today from 2 Corinthians 12, we ask that you would minister to our souls by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, the thorn that is. The apostle Paul pleaded three times that it should leave him, verse 9. But he said to me, that is the Lord Jesus, and these letters are in red in an, in an odd place in Scripture here in late Second Corinthians. Jesus said to the apostle Paul, a true apostle, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, present tense, in the moment. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, for Christ's sake then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's take this on two parts, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 10. In verses 1 through 6, we'll see that we can overcome the devil's deceit by not continuing to ask God to give us grander experiences. And secondly, in verses 7 through 10, we're going to see we can overcome the devil's deceit by not demanding God give us grander healings. I'm not saying we can't ask for experiences. I'm not saying we can't ask for healings. I'm saying we don't demand it. 
The devil pushes us to demand certain things of God that he is not obligated to give and he has not promised to give. He answers all of his promises and he gives us hope by them, but he does not promise to give us grander experiences on demand and he does not promise to give us grander healings and control of our lives on demand. And so those are the two things we want to talk about today. We'll take it on its parts. The hardship circumstances are real and present for Paul and he's not being punished for his sin. The apostles of Jesus want you to know today that your present hardships are not evidently punishment directly for your sin. Let's take it first, verses one through six. Overcome the devil and his deceit when he's trying to get you to demand God give you grander experiences, subjective experiences. Let me try to explain these first six verses by speaking as the Apostle Paul in the first person. I'm trying to sum up chapters 10, 11, and 12 by doing this, and especially where we're in the middle of that material in chapter 12, verses 1 through 10 today. Paul might say it like this. I I must go on boasting because of you. I have to brag because of you. But no one really profits from boasting. I'll go on for now just to try to help you to try to put to rest these false teachers that have infected your church. But let me try it. I've already told you about my life story. I was born in AD 5, an Israelite in Tarsus, a Roman citizen by birthright, So I know of power from Roman citizenship and from religious Judaism, both places. I studied at the most prestigious Jewish religious school in Jerusalem from ages 10 to 15. I was 21 years old when Pilate took power and 23 when Herod executed John the Baptist. At 25 years old, I witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And as a Pharisee, I praised the persecution of the first Christian martyrs until Jesus met me on that day on that road at Damascus in A.D. 34. I was a 29-year-old male. My conversion changed my point of view forever. How I view power, religious and political, it shifted. The gospel shapes my view of shepherding as an act of persuasion and not of coercive power. During my time in Tarsus, from about 33 years old to 42 years old, I experienced something I want to talk briefly to you about, but I'm going to do it in the third person as not to take too much credit. I don't want to overstate it. In fact, I'm not going to say much about it at all. I was 37 years old when I got caught up to the third heaven, you know, where God is. And I don't know if it was in my thoughts or if it was in my body. I don't know. God knows. No matter, really. Because just 10 years ago, Barnabas sought me for missionary ministry. And I started a church here in AD 51. I've written back to you already twice. This is my third time. I've already written back to you three times, rather. This is my fourth time, and I plan to come visit you a third time because of how much I care not only for your conversion, but for your staying with the gospel for your entire lives. These new thought leaders in the church don't care for you like I do, and they sure don't take precedent over me, let alone with their stories and testimonies. This one-upsmanship and these power plays, this boasting is for the birds. Get it out of here. I'm a 51-year-old man now. Your church is five years old. Their tactics should reveal to you that they're off the mark. But if they don't, let me just tell you that they are. Like Jeremiah, when we boast, we need to do it in the Lord and for the Lord's people, not for ourselves. This isn't some kind of self-seeking game. He, the Lord, is is the only one that's sufficient for these new covenant ministry things. We're not sufficient to do this ministry. We need him every single day, and his presence is the secret to contentment, whether in plenty or whether in want. 
I'll talk about my 37-year-old experience while in Tarsus if you want me to. I saw the place where God lives, where we go when we die. I saw paradise. I saw Eden restored. I saw the sin natures overcome. I got a glimpse into glory, but I won't even talk about any further heaven. So much is concealed about it, and it's not what you need for this moment. I only share it as a way to get you back over to my way of thinking. We won't get to where we're going by chasing after the most ecstatic, extra-biblical testimonies and experiences. Leave the concealed things to the Lord, just like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. Focused on what is revealed in this word. It's what's for you. God knows better than you do. Cut out the demands for extra experiences and curiosities to be fulfilled. This is how Don Carson says it. He says it very well. He says, one reason the Lord gave the vision was to strengthen Paul for future service and sufferings. Glimpses the New Testament does not give of the coming glory aim to strengthen faith. I'm sorry, glimpses the New Testament does give of the coming glory aim to strengthen our faith and promote holiness. They do not aim to satisfy your every curiosity. They do not aim to satisfy your every curiosity. Perhaps the way that Kent Hughes puts it might help. He says, most people, had they been granted an ecstasy like Paul, wherein they had actually been raptured to paradise, to God, to his Son, to the Holy Spirit, to the souls of the departed, to the discourse of heaven, would scarcely be able to contain themselves. Today, they would write a bestseller like My Rapture, a personal account of my trip to heaven and back. They would offer seminars on five steps to produce your own rapture. It'd be sold out. The writer's words would be accorded the status of borderline divine revelation. They'd sell more copies than the Bible. Why would you build an entire denomination on it or even fund a college by it, perhaps? Rapture you, you could call it. Paul, however, from the evidence of this text, would certainly have taken the story of his rapture to the grave if it were not for the compelling necessity to boast of it for the sake of the Corinthian church. This boasting and experience is not where the accent should lie in this text and in this core of material. Boast in the saving, historical, finished work of Christ. That's where you need to put the accent. Paul puts the accent as Christ's apostle. He puts it in the saving, historical, finished work of Christ. Your sufficiency does not lie in your control of your current situation, but in Christ's presence with you through it all. Remember, it's ministry that is strength and weakness. It's not ministry that's about your power religiously and politically. But discontentment, discontentment abounds in our churches today, does it not? As believers, we have bought into philosophies that cause us to be discontent and to act in manners commensurate with discontentment. It's a premier problem for our witness today. Aaron Blake wrote this about discontentment online just a week ago. He said, we need to deal with discontentment within before it comes out. He said, today's jealousy is tomorrow's temper tantrum. Today's bigotry is tomorrow's hate crime. Today's anger is tomorrow's abuse. Today's greed is tomorrow's embezzlement. Today's guilt is tomorrow's fear. Today's thoughts are tomorrow's actions. A lot of truth to that, isn't there? Today's thoughts is tomorrow's actions. How do you think about God's work in your life? Do you nurture the bitterness that comes from believing that you haven't gotten enough? That your story's not grand enough? that he hasn't done enough for you, that you've gotten a raw deal. I need you to understand today that by the very way that Paul shapes his personal testimony of ecstasy, being caught up in some grand story of his own, 
is to minimize it as if to say to all of us, cut it out with worrying about the grandeur of your personal story. Cut it out with seeking the grandeurs of other people's personal stories. If their personal stories are so great, then they would have the humility and the thorn that I've got to keep it quiet and to focus on the historical saving work of Jesus Christ. We get it wrong. We don't have to deny our experiences, but when we upplay our experiences and our ecstasies to the point to where it's functionally above the work of Christ as is given to us by the writings of the apostles that actually walked with Jesus as given to us in the scriptures, when we put those stories above, we start demanding for more and more, and what happens is, the very hope that we have in Christ is, is cut aside. It's marginalized because we seem like we don't have enough. 1 Corinthians says this, I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. It also says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 2 Corinthians says, I seek not what is yours, but you. The Apostle Paul is clearly trying to communicate to us in no uncertain terms that he is not trying to get something from the people, but that a good shepherd is trying to get something for the people. And that is for them to slow down a little bit and realize that Christ has done plenty enough for them already. And you don't have to demand an extra sign. And you sure don't need a better story. You just need to accept his story. That's the gospel for you if you're an unbeliever today. You need to accept his story. You don't need to try to draft in with another human being's story. Draft in with Christ's story. You don't need to write your own story and put a little Jesus on top. You need to draft in with his story. If you do that, his semi-truck is plenty big enough to help us get good mileage all the way to where we're going. Unbeliever, put your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin. Trust that God knows better than you do. And walk with him all the days of your life and you'll dwell in his house forever. But I don't want to pretend to you that we as believers have always given a good and pure witness of Christ. This is explained in the way that Ray Ortland talks about this subject. He says, the way we respond to our challenges determines whether we will confirm the world's suspicions that Christianity is just another selfish power trip or whether we will surprise them by proving that Christianity is about finding in the glory of Christ everything we desire though it means we remove self from the center and erect his cross there. Happiness is God being God to you. Please stop praying, he says. Lord, I want you to make my life better. Please stop praying. Lord, I want you to make my husband or my wife better. Please stop praying. I want my children to behave. I want my ideal job. When you pray like that, you can only end up frustrated because God will not subordinate himself to any human agenda. Start praying like this. Lord, I just want you to be God to me. I want my life with my problems to show the world that you save sinners like me. Learn what it means to say with Paul. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's what Philippians 1.20 says, whether by life or by death, honored. That is Christianity. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, I'm trying to refrain from putting the boast on my personal experience. This one-upsmanship is not the purpose of my spiritual giftings and it's not the purpose of yours, but serving is. Consider what Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 say about this subject of serving and how it can help us with discontentment. 
This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 say. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Brought low and to abound. In any and every circumstance, whether low or abounding, I have learned the secret, the secret, he wants to share a secret here, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then here's this out-of-context verse. We always focus on the me and not on the he. The first part, I can do all things. Well, well, these things may be not plenty. They may be things of want. Like we might ought to stop stamping this on every athletic jersey that there's ever been because the fact of the matter is the accent is not on the me but the he. I can do all things, and it may be a, a very humbling thing through him who strengthens me through him who dwells in me and strengthens me. I can do all the things that I'm called to do through him who strengthens me, whether in plenty or in want. See, this is no prosperity gospel. The Apostle Paul doesn't preach it. He knows not of it because it's not a gospel at all. This is a gospel that saves to the uttermost, but it does not leave us the way that we are. It crucifies the conceit in our hearts and the pride in our actions right at the core. That's what the gospel does. And every time it rears its head, God will not foster it forward by answering our petty demands in the affirmative. Notice what I did not say. I did not say that the Lord will never answer your prayers for sensing his presence more. I did not say that the Lord will never answer your prayers for healing. I didn't say you shouldn't pray for healing, and I didn't say that you shouldn't pray to know the Lord more. I simply said you shouldn't demand it. And I read from Ray Ortland, and that pastor was trying to share with you, shape your prayers in such a way that you are looking to others even ahead of yourself and that you're praising Jesus before you're making any sort of requests, let alone demands of him for your life. What I find is, is that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, these things will be added into you as well. But they'll be added to you in a way in which God gets the glory and which you understand what it is that he wants of you, even if it is, I'm not getting rid of that thorn in your flesh. I'm not getting rid of it right now. Conceit is of the devil. So how do I know that I'm being conceited? If conceit is of the devil, how do I know that I'm being conceited? If God hasn't matched my great experience with even greater weakness, how am I to know that I'm walking with him? Harassment from Satan is allowed for my humility, this text says. So let me try to explain that. Let's look at our second point now. Overcoming the devil's deceit by not demanding that God gives you grander healings, grander control of your life's pattern. Let's refresh by looking at verses 7 through 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, so he had capacity, and so the tendency was toward conceit. And so he actually was allowed, it says here, to have a buffet, allowed to have a harassment the Lord allowed a Job-like harassment of the apostle Paul to keep him from becoming conceited. That much we know was the purpose for his thorn. So to keep me from becoming conceited of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, in his body, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. In case you missed it the first time, the KJV says, to keep me from being endlessly exalted or overexalted, self-exalted. That sounds kind of not too important, doesn't it? I mean, we would tend to think of other things, like maybe sensuality is a bigger issue than selfishness, pride, and conceit. The Apostle Paul looks here at conceit 
as one of the major problems. And he goes on to talk about it. In verse 9, he says, He said to me, whenever I had asked him that it would be removed, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I'm going to boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me or dwell in me or tabernacle with me. For the sake of Christ, for Christ's sake, then I'm content. And he goes through his hardship list like he's prone to do in First and Second Corinthians as well as in other places. And he says, all these hardships, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's how I want you to frame and think of hardships. I don't want you to give in to this this devilish deceit that makes you think that you need to demand of God greater healing. And if if you just have enough faith, it'll happen. And you should ask him, and you'll definitely get exactly what you want when you want it. That's verses out of context. And it's what underlies it is control. Let me back up a minute and maybe think of this and conceive of this conceit as a problem in the church as a whole and not just with you individually. Let's think of it as a problem in the church. This is what David Wells says. He says, Like the Corinthians, we too long for immediate gratification and personal independence instead of finding our delight in learning to depend on God in the midst of our sufferings and our weaknesses. Like Paul's opponents, our leaders are drawn to models of cultural power and prestige. Like all people, we gravitate to promises of health and wealth and messages that puffs us up rather than glorifying God. In a word, we have a tendency to become worldly. The world is the way in which our collective life and society and the culture that goes with it is organized around the self in substitution for God. It is a life characterized by self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, and a distaste corresponding for the denial of self proper to union with Christ. As Satan's servant, 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen says, All who deny the gospel do so in the end by selling the self or some trinket of this world as more reliable, more sufficient, more satisfying than knowing and living for God. Over against these temptations to sin stands Paul's gospel of the glory of God in the crucified Christ on the one hand and Paul's boast in his weakness on the other. Wells goes on to say helpfully, As it was for Paul today, too, the pressure on pastors to be successful according to the standards of contemporary culture is intense. And as it did for Paul, today too, this pressure comes not from the world, but from the worldliness within the church. The temptation is to respond by boasting in one's strength, for in our day we find it difficult, if not downright impossible, to believe that God is at work through the proclamation of his word if the, people, if the number of people in our Sunday morning services is not growing exponentially. Kind of hard to boast in that now, isn't it? In our sizes culture, sizes success culture, it almost always is beyond our ability to to resist determining the measure of God's blessing by the numbers of our congregation. We confuse the ability to draw a crowd with the establishment of a people known by their sincere and pure devotion to Christ, like 2 Corinthians 11 says. Accordingly, look at the size of our parking lot rather than the size of our church's heart for God and his people and for the lost world in which she lives. And he finally ends with this, and it's if you've heard nothing else I've quoted from David Wells in his prophetic voice today. Listen to this. He said, Evangelical Christians have not begun to discern the potential of ambition, recognition, popularity, fame, and power to corrupt men. But while sex and money have slain their thousands, ambition and its unholy siblings have slain their tens of thousands. While sex and money have slain their thousands, Ambition and its unholy siblings have slain their tens of thousands. You know, Saul Alinsky knew this was of the devil. In his 
end of life, famous book. It's been ruled, ruled, used by many to formulate political thought and community organizing. His book, Rules for Radicals, a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals, released in 1971, had in its foreword a credit to Satan himself. Here's what it says, beginning with a dedication then to Lucifer. Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. Credits to Lucifer. Now, lest we think that's not a biblical concept, that Lucifer sets himself up as self-exalted in the face of Christ and does it in a way that's not pitchfork and red-suited, but in a way that might tempt us to think that that kind of power pursuit in Rome and in Jerusalem, like Paul had to reject, that makes us think that that kind of power and view of power, that coercive power, is what we should long for, lest we think that that is not a real problem today. Listen to the words that Paul uses to describe the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness that is to come, and perhaps in many ways has come. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. It talks of this deceptive, rebellious man, and it says that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you hear that? Who does he exalt? He exalts himself. Who are we imaging when we exalt Self? Are we imaging Christ? We're imaging Satan, aren't we? This is how we know the Antichrist. Still think that conceit is a small little problem upside of something like sensuality? I don't think so. I think maturing churches learn that vainglory and conceit is a hidden disease in the body that rears its ugly head with all kinds of rotten fruit. It's a whitewashed sin. It's a sin by which you can function better than the person that lives like a hedonist. But it's a sin nonetheless, and it comes from the devil, and we need to call it out today. Our perceptions of power have to be reframed by the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 tells of a thorn in Paul's flesh. It's a curious thing. We don't know what it was. Perhaps it was a physical ailment. It was in his flesh after all. Maybe it was guilt over having sinned against the churches in the past. Who among us doesn't carry guilt for having sinned against the Lord and his church in the past, right? Perhaps it was physical ailment or sinning against the churches. Maybe it was an emotional pain. I think the beauty in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 is that it's left blank so that you can fill in the blank. He doesn't tell us what the thorn in his flesh was. So that you can fill in the blank. What is the thorn in your flesh? What is that thing that if only God would remove it and remove it now, you think your worship of him would be more grandiose? What is it? Think about it in these moments. What is that hardship? What is that weakness? If you would just do this, I'd do that. I think that we all have one somewhere at some time in our lives, and perhaps even in the moment you have it now. What is your thorn? 
I think that verse 7 is left blank so that you can fill in the blank. What hardship is a thorn in your life? Think deeply about it and, and write it down. Commit it to memory. What is that thing? Don't be clever with God right now. Let this moment be a time which you are contrite and not conceited, and you'll open up with God, if no one else, and say, that's the thing. Because if you'd fix it, I'd worship more freely. If you'd fix it, I'd serve. I want to challenge that logic today and that order of operations, and I want to challenge it in the strongest way. Mark Dever says it like this. He says, how do you keep life, keep going in your life? What, if you, what do you do if you're facing circumstances today that you think are overwhelming? Maybe you don't even admit it to anybody else that you feel overwhelmed because your trials seem small compared to others' trials. But you know they feel big to, do, to you. What, what do you do? Don't lose heart. Outwardly you're wasting away, but inwardly you're being renewed. You preach to yourself. You look to the eternal, not to what you see. Paul says that this is strong people who need to learn that, they're, that they are weak. And he says to weak, I'm sorry, Paul says to strong people who need to learn that they're weak, these things. And he says to weak people who are tempted to look elsewhere for strength, this same message. He says this to all people that all might turn and rely on Christ. He says it then, and he's still saying it today to me and to you. Can you hear him? Whether you think your problem's too small to make a footnote of in history, whether you think of yourself as powerful, or whether you think of yourself as weak, this passage should hit you square between the eyes. What is the hardship that keeps you from worship and ministry? And how have you bought in to the idea that you should be able to demand of God and strong-arm God into fixing your situation? Because your hardship is not about your situation. It's about his sufficiency. It wasn't about Paul's situation. He's talking about it to try to put aside false philosophies in the church. He says it wasn't about that. It was about the sufficiency of Christ. It was about his grace. It is about it today. But, but I want to know why, don't you? I want to know why. Why is it that God allows this to happen in my life? It's good leadership, actually, to answer the, the why question. That's how you get people motivated. That's what the gurus say, I think. Well, God gives him a little bit of a why. He, he kind of says, uh, I don't want you to be conceited, and so I'm going to let this thorn stay. I'm not going not to answer your prayer. But it's not really a great answer to why, is it? It's, it's not like one plus one equals two. I, I think we don't have the latitude to demand an answer to why. We may see why. It may be that God shows us this is why the thorn is staying in your flesh. But what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't explain to you in clear terms why the hardship remains in your life? He didn't appear to for Paul other than the fact that he shouldn't be conceited. It's just there because that's what is needed for you to run your race, for you to stay drafted in behind me on this highway to heaven. That's what's needed. It's interesting. This is, this is not a, an approach of masochism. Look at verse 8. The Apostle Paul actually feels the latitude to ask for a time that it be removed. And then he has to become comfortable with the fact that, at least content, maybe not comfortable, he has to become content with the fact that it's the Lord's will that it stays. I have a clear word from the Lord. Three times it says in verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. 
That probably makes us think of the Garden of Gethsemane if we meditate on it for a minute. Earlier in the service, Pastor Kurt read from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he asked three times during that, that night of, of tragedy in wait. He asked the Lord that, that some way this cup might be removed from him. Remember, the apostles are sleeping. They're asleep at the wheel. And finally, Jesus says, in an odd use of language, enough. Let's go. Rise. My betrayer's here. It's almost as if to say, enough. Suffering is here. Enough has been done. Trust in the enough instead of trying to make a new story. I hear in this passage Paul drafting in with Jesus, saying, I asked three significant times. I begged him that this, this should go, and he is not receiving glory by it going. He's receiving glory by it staying. And so I have accepted that, and the way that I have interpreted that, actually Jesus has told me for you, and I'm going to put it down right here, red letters, Christ's grace is sufficient for you. His power is perfected or finished in weakness. So opposite of how we envision power in our world. The gospel is not something that that you or I or Paul would invent. It's too strange. Oughtn't we be strange to the watching world as we learn to live by the gospel? Do you try to hide your weaknesses from others? Do you habitually excuse them to yourself? Do you get depressed and angry and defensive when others outperform or out-accomplish you when someone points out your mistakes? What step can you take practically to begin viewing your weaknesses and others' strengths with gratitude because your insufficiency invariably draws your gaze to Christ as a believer? According to this text, where does God most clearly manifest His power in our lives? His power is made perfect in our weaknesses, in your weaknesses. In my weaknesses. It's natural for us to want vibrancy and growth and strength, all good things. But what if God has a divine purpose unknown to you, the why you don't get to know right now, for your hardship? What if God doesn't? Fix this marriage. Do I just build up my case against my spouse? Even if there's no biblical reason involved until I feel justified to get out of it? When that conceit and bitterness starts to get fostered in my heart, I don't serve the marriage anymore. I serve myself. And when I serve myself... Smugly and self-righteously, I'm trying to stay in control and control the talk right as I walk out that door. That is devilish deceit in the first order. It's devilish deceit. The devil describes himself and disguises himself as an angel of the light. He self-exalts. He uses the power that he's been given for himself not to serve. That really is the anecdote for this problem of conceit. If you'll indulge in a cross-reference, Philippians says it very, very well. 
in this other place that Paul writes a letter to another church. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, this is what it looks like to be like Christ and not like Satan. It says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is the model for looking at others' interests and not just at our own. Jen Oshman recently released a book titled Enough About Me, Finding Lasting Joy in the Age of Self. I haven't read the book yet, but I'm curious by the quotes on Westminster's website. It says, let's admit that we are not enough and turn to the God who is. That seems to fit with our passage today. Your life is not your own. You're not enough. You are not all you need, but Jesus is there and he is enough. That seems to fit with what Paul's saying here. She writes, the gospel truth that God is both our creator and redeemer is the only soil that will nourish us in our Christian lives. The belief in yourself gospel is wreaking havoc on the church, especially in women's ministry, she writes. 21st century women have been, running, have been running on ourselves rather than running on the fuel of God. We've been running on self-help, self-empowerment, self-actualization. The women's Christian book sections at Target's, Costco's, and Barnes & Noble across America is fueling this false gospel, false philosophy, this thinly veiled obsession with self. She writes, I think, aptly. Perhaps we should read her book. Jen Oshman. Women today feel, she concludes, a constant pressure to improve themselves and just never feel like they're enough. All too often they live their daily lives disheartened, disillusioned, disappointed. That's because joy doesn't come from a new improvement strategy. It comes from rooting their identity in who God says you are and what he says he has done on your behalf. What if you have such an exalted view of yourself that your Christian liberty causes you to flex your muscles instead of considering those weaker vessels in the church. God's plan is not forged through you flexing your liberty muscles, but through your weakness, considering others more highly than yourself. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ and not your demands for a sign and not your demands for a fix. Sometimes we, in the Spirit, we don't even know how to pray. Romans chapter 8 says in our weakness that the Spirit helps with the prayers that we don't even know how to say. When we've been silenced, the Spirit speaks for us. That's the kind of riches and glory you have in Christ, Romans chapter 8. It would be great for you to read this afternoon or after, whenever after you, you watch this. Read Romans 8, 26 through 39 in light of this whole sermon. I won't take the time to do it now, but Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, and let the Spirit minister to you about what this whole project is supposed to look like. James promises that we get more grace. The point is Christ's sufficiency, not ours. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Redeem the time. Ask for wisdom. His grace is greater than all of our sin. That's what this passage tells us we shouldn't go on sinning more that grace may abound more by no means Romans says but his grace is greater than all of our sin all of our sin his grace is good and at the same time 
He is sufficient in his power, whether he flexes his muscles or not. Let's re-examine our coping mechanisms to see if they're thoroughly Christian or if worldly philosophies has crept in on us, friends. This is a great time to do it. A lot of our schedules have been sort of mopped. We get to think. We get to think about important verses from Scripture like this. Real gospel ministry is about strength and weakness. It's not about our sense of self-power. Let's look to serve more than to show off. Let's look for Christ in the situation and not just relief in the situation. Let's tell of the story of Christ's grounded, saving person in work and not look for new stories to try to one-up him. You'll find that while yourself is woefully insufficient, his grace is more than enough. He's with you. Conceit will die a 10,000 deaths. Christ in you for his sake will be enough. Grace will result in contentment, but contentment is not even a demand that I want to urge you to ask. It's not even the goal. Christ is the goal. Contentment is a byproduct when conceit dies. I'm reminded of Jesus and how he modeled serving. You remember his apostles were struggling so much? Peter didn't get it. I'm sure Paul didn't get it at first. And they're struggling so much, they were doing this one-upsmanship thing. And you can read about it in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. And he says, what, to Peter, James, and John, and their mom was involved, remember all this stuff? That the greatest of you will, will be a servant. If you're seeking to be all-powerful, you're missing it. That's not what my servants do. And what did Jesus do to kind of give us a picture of that in our mind? But as we get ready for Holy Week coming up next week, John 13. As we lean into the events before the passion of Christ, what does it say that, that Jesus did to model serving as it's recorded in John 13? He did a meaning, menial, necessary task. What did he do? He, he washed dirty feet of people that had walked around in the sandy desert, walked around in the outside with sandals on. He did a necessary task. He, he did something that really he could have delegated. He didn't have to do that. Service is a great anecdote for pride. It's a great anecdote for Conceit. In conclusion, listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Right there in the core material that we've been reading about. Jesus was crucified in weakness. See that? Crucified in weakness. This is Jesus. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. That sums it up, doesn't it? Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Your hardship may take you to the grave. They may not give you the healing that you thought you should have demanded. He may not give you the story. And if he does give you the story and the healing, then you're going to need some thorn somehow to keep you from becoming conceited because with great capacity comes great responsibility. When we're weak in him, he is strong. And we're able to deal with issues in the church for our blessing by the power of God. Age sage William Gouge in the 1600s said, when he was laid aside... By what proved to be his final illness, he remarked to those around him these infamous or famous rather words. He said, when I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look to Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please bind us up in our brokenheartedness and help us to see philosophy through you. Help our philosophy for living to be shaped not by ourselves and not by Satan, but by your saving work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Join us as we sing a couple more songs. We're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and then it is well with my soul. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not as thou.